On Old Age by Cicero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. And should my service, Titus, ease the weight of care that wrings your heart, and draw the sting which rankles there, what guerdon shall there be? For I may address you, Atticus, in the lines in which Flamininus was addressed by the man who, poor in wealth, was rich in honor's gold. Though I am well assured that you are not, as Flamininus was, kept on the rack of care by night and day. For I know how well, ordered and equable your mind is, and am fully aware that it was not a surname alone which we brought home with you from Athens, but its culture and good sense. And yet, I have an idea that you are at times stirred to the heart by the same circumstances as myself. To console you for these is a more serious matter, and must be put off to another time. For the present, I have resolved to dedicate to you an essay on old age. For from the burden of impending, or at least advancing age, common to us both, I would do something to relieve us both. Though as to yourself, I am fully aware that you support and will support it as you do everything else, with calmness and philosophy. But directly, I resolved to write on old age. You at once occurred to me as a deserving a gift of which both of us might take advantage. To myself, indeed, the composition of this book has been so delightful that it has not only wiped away all the disagreeables of old age, but has even made it luxurious and delightful too. Never, therefore, can philosophy be praised as highly as it deserves, considering that its faithful disciple is able to spend every period of his life with unruffled feelings. However, on other subjects I have spoken at large, and shall often speak again. This book, which I herewith send to you, is on old age. I have put the whole discourse not, as Alisto of Kost did, in the mouth of Tythonus, for a mere fable would have lacked conviction, but in that of Marcus Cato, when he was an old man, to give my essay greater weight. I represent Laelius and Scipio at his house, expressing surprise at his carrying his ears so lightly, and Cato answering them. If he so seemed to show somewhat more learning in this discourse than he generally did in his own books, put it down to Greek literature of which it is known that he became an eager student in his old age. But what need of more? Cato's own words will at once explain all I feel about old age. M. Cato, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus the Younger, Gaius Lelius. Scipio. Many a time have I in conversation with my friend Gaius Lelius here expressed my admiration, Marcus Cato, of the eminent, nay perfect wisdom displayed by you indeed at all points, but above everything because I have noticed that old age never seemed a burden to you, when to most old men it is so hateful that they declare themselves under a weight heavier than Etna. Cato. Your admiration is easily excited, it seems, my dear Scipio and Lelius. Men, of course, who have no resources in themselves for securing a good and happy life find every age burdensome. But those who look for all happiness from within can never think anything bad which nature makes inevitable. In that category, before anything else comes old age, to which all wish to attain, and at which all grumble when attained. Such as follies and consistency and unreasonableness. They say that it is stealing upon them faster than they expected, in the first place, who compelled them to hug an illusion? For in what respect did old age steal upon manhood faster than manhood upon childhood? In the next place, 
in what way would old age have been less disagreeable to them if they were in their 800th year than their 80th? For the past, however long, when once it was past, would have no consolation for a stupid old age. Wherefore, if it is your want to admire my wisdom, and I would that it were worthy of your good opinion and of my own name of sapiens, it really consists in the fact that I follow nature, the best of guides, as I would a god, and am loyal to her commands. It is not likely, if she has written the rest of the play well, that she has been careless about the last act like some idle poet. But after all, some, quote, last, was inevitable, just as to the berries of a tree and the fruits of the earth there comes in the fullness of time a period of decay and fall. A wise man will not make a grievance of this. To rebel against nature, is that not to fight like the giants with the gods? Lelius. And yet, Cato, you will do us a very great favor. I venture to speak for Scipio as for myself, if, since we all hope, or at least wish, to become old men, you would allow us to learn from you in good time before it arrives, by what methods we most easily acquire the strength to support the burden of advancing age. Cato. I will do so without doubt, Laelius, especially if, as you say, it will be agreeable to Scipio as well. Laelius. We do wish very much, Cato, if it's no trouble to you, to be allowed to see the nature of the bourne which you have reached after completing a long journey, as it were, upon which we too are to embark. Cato. I will do the best that I can, Laelius. It has often been my fortune to hear the complaints of my contemporaries. Like will to like. You know, according to the old proverb, complaints to which men like Salinator and Albinus, who were of consular rank in about my time, used to give vent. They were, first, that they had lost the pleasures of the senses, without which they did not regard life as full at all. And secondly, that they were neglected by those from whom they had been used to receive attentions. Such men appear to me to lay the blame on the wrong thing. For if it had been the fault of old age, then these same misfortunes would befall in me and all other men of advanced years. But I have known many of them who never said a word of complaint against old age, for they were only too glad to be freed from the bondage of passion and were not looked at all down upon by their friends. The fact is that the blame for all complaints of that kind is to be charged to character, not to a particular time of life. For old men who are reasonable and neither cross-grained nor churlish find old age tolerable enough, whereas unreason and churlishness cause uneasiness at every time of life. Laelius It is as you say, Cato, but perhaps someone may suggest that it is your large means, wealth, and high position that makes you think old age tolerable, whereas such good fortune only falls to few. Cato There is something in that, Laelius, but by no means all. For instance, the story is told of the answer of Themistocles in a wrangle with a certain Seraphian, who asserted that he owed his brilliant position to the reputation of his country, not to his own. Quote, if I had been a Seraphian, said he, even I should never have been famous, nor would you if you had been an Athenian. End quote. Something like this may be said of old age. For the philosopher himself could not find old age easy to bear in the depths of poverty, nor the fool fear anything but a burden though he were a millionaire. You may be sure, my dear Scipio and Laelius, that the arms best adapted to old age are culture and the active exercise of virtues. For if they have been maintained at every period, if one has lived much as well as long, the harvest they produce is wonderful, not only because they never fail us even in our last days, 
though that in itself is supremely important, but also because the consciousness of a well-spent life and the recollection of many virtuous actions are exceedingly delightful. Take the case of Fabius Maximus, the man, I mean, who recovered Tarentum. When I was a young man, and he an old one, I was as much attached to him as if he had been my contemporary. For that great man's serious dignity was tempered by courteous manners, nor had old age made any change in his character. True, he was not exactly an old man when my devotion to him began, yet he was nevertheless well on in life, for his first consulship fell in a year after my birth. When quite a stripling, I went with him in his fourth consulship as a soldier in the ranks on the expedition against Capua, and in the fifth year after that against Tarentum. Four years after that, I was elected Kester, holding office in the consulship of Tudantius and Sethegus, in which year, indeed, he as a very old man spoke in favor of the Sincinian law, quote, on gifts and fees, end quote. Now this man conducted wars with all the spirit of youth when he was far advanced in life, and by his persistence gradually wearied out Hannibal when riding in all the confidence of his youth. How brilliant are those lines of my friend Aeneas on him. For us, downbeaten by the storms of fate, one man by wise delays restored the state. Praise or dispraise moved not his constant mood, true to his purpose, to his country's good. Down ever-lengthening avenues of fame thus shines and shall shine still his glorious name. Again, what vigilance, what profound skill did he show in the capture of Tarentum. It was indeed in my hearing that he made his favorite retort to Salinator, who had retreated into the citadel after losing the town. Quote, It was owing to me, Quintus Fabius, that you retook Tarentum. Quite so, he replied with a laugh, for had you not lost it, I should never have recovered it. Nor was he less eminent in civil life than in war. In his second consulship, though his colleague would not move in the matter, he resisted, as long as he could, the proposal that the Tribune Flamininus to divide the territory of the Picenians and Gauls in free allotments in defiance of the resolution of the Senate. Again, though he was an augur, he ventured to say that whatever was done in the interest of the state was done with the best possible auspices, that any laws proposed against its interest were proposed against the auspices. I was cognizant of much that was admirable in that great man, but nothing struck me with greater astonishment than the way in which he bore the death of his son a man of brilliant character, and who had been consul. His funeral speech over him is in wide circulation, and when we read it, is there any philosopher of whom we do not think meanly? Nor in truth was he only great in the light of day and in the sight of his fellow citizens. He was still more eminent in private and at home. What a wealth of conversation! What weighty maxims! What a wide acquaintance with ancient history! What an accurate knowledge of the science of augury. For a Roman, too, he had a great tincture of letters. He had a tenacious memory for military history of every sort, whether of Roman or of foreign wars. And I used at that time to enjoy his conversation with a passionate eagerness, as though I had already divined what actually turned out to be the case, that when he died there would be no one to teach me anything. What, then, is the purpose of such a long disquisition on Maximus? It is because you now see that old age like his cannot conscientiously be called unhappy. Yet it is, after all, true that everybody cannot be a Scipio or a Maximus, with storming of cities, with battles by land and sea, with wars in which they themselves commanded, and with triumphs to recall. 
Besides this, there is a quiet, pure, and cultivated life, which produces a calm and gentle old age, such as we have been told Plato's was, who died at his writing desk in his 81st year, or like that of Isocrates, who says that he wrote the book called The Pangyric in his 94th year, and who lived for five years afterwards, while his master, Gorgias of Leontini, completed 107 years without ever relaxing his diligence or giving up work. When someone asked him why he consented to remain so long alive, I have no fault, said he, to find with old age. That was a noble answer, and worthy of a scholar. For fools impute their own frailties and guilt to old age, contrary to the practice of Ennius, whom I mentioned just now. In the lines, Like some brave steed that oft before the Olympic wreath of victory bore, now by the weight of years oppressed forgets the race, and takes his rest. He compares his own old age to that of a high-spirit and successful racehorse. And him indeed you may very well remember, for the present consuls Titus Flamininus and Manius Acilius were elected in the ninetieth year after his death, and his death occurred in the consulship of Capio and Philippus, the latter consul for the second time, in which year I, then sixty-six years old, spoke in favor of the Voconian law in a voice that was still strong with lungs still sound, while he, though seventy years old, supported two burdens considered the heaviest of all, poverty and old age, in such a way as to be all but fond of them. The fact is, that when I come to think it over, I find there are four reasons for old age being thought unhappy. First, that it withdraws us from active employment. Second, that it enfeebles the body. Third, that it deprives us of nearly all physical pleasures. Fourth, that it is the next step to death. Of each of these reasons, if you will allow me, let us examine the force and justice separately. Old age withdraws us from active employments. From which of them? Do you mean from those carried on by youth and bodily strength? Are there then no old men's employments to be after all conducted by the intellect, even when bodies are weak? So then Maximus did nothing, nor Aemilius, your father, Scipio, and my excellent son's father-in-law. So with other old men, the Fabrici, the Curie, the Corinzani, when they were supporting the state by their advice and influence, they were doing nothing. To old age, Appius Claudius had the additional disadvantage of being blind. Yet it was he who, when the state was inclining towards a peace with Pyrrhus and was making for a treaty, did not hesitate to say what Aeneas has embalmed in the verses. Whither have swerved the soul so firm of yore? Is sense growing senseless? Can feet stand no more? And so on, in a tone of the most passionate vehemence. You know the poem, and the speech of Appius himself is extant. Now he delivered it seventeen years after his second consulship, there having been an interval of ten years between the two consulships, and he having been censored before his previous consulship. This will show you that at the time of the war with Pyrrhus he was a very old man. Yet, this is the story handed down to us. There is therefore nothing in the arguments of those who say that old age takes no part in public business. They are like men who would say that a steersman does nothing in sailing a ship, because while some of the crew are climbing the mast, others hurrying up and down the gangways, others pumping out the bilge water, he sits quietly in the stern holding the tiller. He does not do what young men do. Nevertheless, he does what is much more important and better. The great affairs of life are not performed by physical strength, or activity, or nimbleness of body, but by deliberation, character, expression of opinion. Of these, old age is not only not deprived, but as a rule has them in greater degree. 
Unless by any chance I, who as a soldier in the ranks, as military tribune, as legate, and as consul have been employed in various kinds of war, now appear to you to be idle because not actively engaged in war. But I enjoined upon the Senate what is to be done and how. Carthage has long been harboring evil designs, and I accordingly proclaim war against her in good time. I shall never cease to entertain fears about her till I hear of her having been leveled with the ground. The glory of doing that, I pray to the immortal gods, may reserve to you, Scipio, so that you may complete the task begun by your grandfather, now dead more than thirty-two years ago, though all the years to come will keep that great man's memory green. He died in the year before my censorship, nine years after my consulship, having been returned consul for a second time in my own consulship. If, then, he had lived to his hundredth year, would he have regretted having lived to be old? For he would, of course, not have been practicing rapid marches nor dashing on a foe, nor hurling spears from a distance, nor using swords at close quarters, but only counsel, reason, and senatorial eloquence. And if those qualities had not resided in us seniors, our ancestors would never have called their supreme council a senate. At Sparta, indeed, those who hold the highest magistracies are in accordance with the fact actually called elders. But if you take the trouble to read or listen to foreign history, you will find that the mightiest states have been brought into peril by young men, have been supported and restored by old. The question occurs in the poet Nevius' sport. Pray, who are those who brought your state with such dispatch to meet its fate? There is a long answer, but this is the chief point. A crop of brand new orators regrew, and foolish paltry lads who thought they knew. For of course rashness is the note of youth, prudence of old age. But, it is said, memory dwindles. No doubt, unless you keep it in practice, or if you happen to be somewhat dull by nature. Themistocles had the names of all his fellow citizens by heart. Do you imagine that in his old age he used to address Aristides as Lysimachus? For my part, I know not only the present generation, but their father also and their grandfathers. Nor have I any fear of losing my memory by reading tombstones, according to the vulgar superstition. On the contrary, by reading them, I renew my memory of those who are dead and gone. Nor, in point of fact, have I ever heard of any old man forgetting where he has hidden his money. They remember everything that interests them. When to answer to their bail, business appointments, who owes them money, and to whom they owe it. What about lawyers, pontiffs, augurs, philosophers when old? What a multitude of things they remember. Old men retain their intellects well enough, if only they keep their minds active and fully employed. Nor is that the case only with men of high position and great office. It applies equally to private life and peaceful pursuits. Sophocles composed tragedies to extreme old age, and being brought to court to get a judicial decision depriving him of the management of his property on the grounds of weak intellect, just as in our law it is customary to deprive a paterfamilias of the management of his property if he is squandering it. Thereupon, the old poet is said to have read to the judges the play he had on hand and had just composed the Oedipus Colonius, and to have asked them whether they thought that the work of a man of weak intellect. After reading, he was acquitted by the jury. Did old age then compel this man to become silent in his particular act, or Homer, Hesiod, Simonides, or Isocrates and Gorgias, whom I mentioned before, or the founders of schools of philosophy, Pythagoras, Democritus, Plato, Xenocrates, or Leto Zeno and Cleanthes, or Diogenes the Stoic, whom you too saw at Rome? Is it not rather the case with all these that the active pursuit of study only ended with life? But to pass over these sublime studies, 
I can name some rustic Romans from the Sabine district, neighbors and friends of my own, without whose presence farm work of importance is scarcely ever performed, whether sowing or harvesting or storing crops. And yet, in other things, this is less surprising, for no one is so old to think that he may not live a year. But they bestow their labor on what they know does not affect them in any case. He plants his trees to serve a race to come, as our old poet Statius say in his comrades. Nor indeed would the farmer, however old, hesitate to answer anyone who asked him for what he was planting. For the immortal gods, whose will it was that I should not merely receive these things from my ancestors, but should also hand them on to the next generation. That remark about the old man is better than the following. If age bought nothing worse than this, it were enough to mar our bliss, that he who bides for many years sees much to shun and much for tears. Yes, and perhaps much that gives him pleasure, too. Besides, as the subjects for tears, he often comes upon them in youth as well. A still more questionable sentiment in the same Cecilius is, No greater misery can of age be told than this, be sure, the young dislike the old. Delight in them is nearer the mark than dislike. For just as old men, if they are wise, take pleasure in the society of young men of good parts, and as old age is rendered less dreary for those who are courted and liked by the youth, so also do young men find pleasures in the maxims of the old, by which they are drawn to the pursuit of excellence. Nor do I perceive that you find my society less pleasant than I do yours. But this is enough to show you how, so far from being listless and sluggish, old age is ever a busy time, always doing and attempting something, of course of the same nature as each man's taste had been in the previous part of his life. Nay, do not some even add to their stock of learning? We see Solon, for instance, boasting his poems that he grows old, quote, daily learning something new, end quote. Or again in my own case, it was only when an old man that I became acquainted with Greek literature, which in fact I absorbed with such avidity in my yearning to quench as it were a long-continued thirst that I became acquainted with the very facts which you now see me using as precedents. When I heard what Socrates had done about the lyre, I should have liked for my part to have done that too, for the ancients used to learn the lyre, but at any rate, I worked hard at literature. Nor again do I now miss the bodily strength of a young man, for that was the second point as to the disadvantages of old age any more than as a young man I miss the strength of a bull or an elephant. You should use what you have, and at whatever you may chance to be doing, do it with all your might. What could be weaker than Milo of Croton's exclamation? When in his old age he was watching some athletes practicing in the course, he is said to have looked at his arms and to have exclaimed with tears in his eyes, Ah, well, these are now as good as dead. Not a bit more so than yourself, you trifler. For at no time were you made famous by your real self but by the chest and biceps. Sextinius Aelius never gave vent to such a remark, nor, many years before him, Titus Caruncunanus, nor more recently P. Crassus. All of them learned jurisconsults in active practice, whose knowledge of their profession was maintained to their last breath. I am afraid that an orator does lose vigor by old age, for his art is not a matter of the intellect alone, but of lungs and bodily strength. Though as a rule that musical ring in the voice even gains in brilliance in a certain way as one grows old, certainly I have not yet lost it, and you see my years. Yet after all, the style of speech suitable to an old man is the quiet and unemotional, and it often happens that the chastened and calm delivery of an old man eloquent secures a hearing. If you cannot attain that yourself, 
you might still instruct the Scipio and Aelius. For what is more charming than old age surrounded by the enthusiasm of youth? Shall we not allow old age even the strength to teach the young, to train and equip them for all the duties of life? And what can be a nobler employment? For my part, I used to think Publius and Gnaeus Scipio and your two grandfathers, Aemilius and Africanus, fortunate men, when I saw them with a company of young nobles about them. Nor should we think any teachers of the fine arts otherwise than happy, however much of their bodily forces may have decayed and failed. And yet that same failure of the body forces is more often brought about by the vices of youth than of old age. For a dissolute and intemperate youth hands down the body to old age in a worn-out state. Xenophon Cyrus, for instance, in his discourse delivered on his deathbed and at a very advanced age, says that he never perceived his old age to have become weaker than his youth had been. I remember as a boy Lucius Metellus, who, having been created Pontifex Maximus four years after his second consulship, held that office twenty-two years, enjoying such excellent strength to body in the very last hours of his life as to not miss his youth. I need not speak of myself, though that indeed is an old man's way and is generally allowed into my time of life. Don't you see in Homer how frequently Nestor talks of his own good qualities? For he was living through a third generation, nor had he any reason to fear that upon saying what was true about himself, he should appear either over vain or talkative. For as Homer says, quote, from his lips flowed discourse sweeter than honey, end quote, for which sweet breath he wanted no bodily strength. And yet, after all, the famous leader of the Greeks nowhere wishes to have ten men like Ajax, but like Nestor, if you could get them, he feels no doubt of Troy shortly falling. 